As you're getting back to your seats, would you turn now to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we will look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. If you have one of our Bibles, that would be page 1016. 1016. As we continue this series through 1 Peter, 1 and 2 Peter. We come now to 1 Peter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. If you're able, would you please stand to honor the reading of God's holy word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we who are your children call upon you to plead your promises back to you, namely that you would complete the good work you have begun in us. And to that end, we ask that your holy word, as it is read and as it is Proclaimed this morning may take deep root in our hearts, that by the power of your Spirit we may walk in holiness before you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Several years ago in a seminary class, I was studying a unit on secularization in modern Britain. If the word secularization is new to you, it's just a term that refers to the fading of religion from a society over time. And it has set in in Western Europe and in Great Britain. We were studying that issue and looking at different arguments for what the causes of secularization are. We read one book that said secularization is a natural product of a modernizing world, and so it argued the roots of secularization go all the way back to the beginning of the modern world in the 1500s. Another book argued that there were some unique cultural trends that emerged in the 1960s that sped up the process of secularization, especially in Britain. And then the professor gave us an interesting article that made a very simple argument. And the author argued that secularization has happened in Great Britain because some time ago, preachers decided to stop preaching about hell. I want to draw your attention to an image on the screen. This is an image of one of the books we read, but I, I don't, I'm not really promoting the book. It's a fine book, but I'm promoting the image itself. Do you see the, the image here? And doesn't it cause your heart to ache to see a beautiful church building being repurposed as a carpet store? This is a reality across Europe and in a number of other places. So I wanted to pose this question 
picking up on that article we read, is there a direct line that we can draw from the fading of preaching about the final judgment in churches, especially in Western Europe, but also here in America? Is there a line from that to what you see on the screen? The emptying of churches and the repurposing of them for other things. I think we can draw a line, probably lots of different lines you can draw, but but there is a line there uh, between, I think, the preaching of the final judgment, which has in many places gone out of fashion today, and scenes like the one you see on the screen. And I I would think it would go something like this. Some time ago, when, when churches and denominations decided that the modern world just simply could not accept a doctrine of God that includes judgment, the modern world is, is not capable of understanding God in those terms, is not capable of, of responding to a God who would judge, and so preferring to think of God in non-judgmental categories, many churches, many denominations decided to eliminate what we might call fire and brimstone preaching the preaching that we tend to associate with narrow-minded, backwoods people. Well, over time, if that begins to set in, churchgoers begin to get a message. And that message is, it doesn't matter in the end if I am here or not. It doesn't matter in the end because there's no judgment coming, or if there is, it doesn't matter because my preacher would certainly tell me if it was something I needed to worry about. Why am I making this commitment on a Sunday morning to be here? Why am I giving up sleeping in or, or golfing or doing whatever else I want to do and showing up to this place where I know in the end it's not really going to matter whether or not I was here? I think you can see that line. Churches who minimize the preaching of the final judgment will drift from the gospel. In fact, doing so is already itself a drift from the gospel. If you look at the sermons in Acts, for example, where the early church was proclaiming the gospel in their own setting, and you look at at how the apostles proclaimed the gospel in the book of Acts, you'll notice a trend that every sermon leads up to some kind of declaration of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead, exalted to the right hand of God, and coming in judgment one day, leading then to an invitation to the hearers, therefore repent and believe the gospel so that when the judgment comes, you must not fall under it. And so the, the gospel itself is shaped by that very doctrine of the final judgment, that one day there will be a final answer to all sin, that one day there will be a final separation within humanity, what C.S. Lewis called a great divorce. There will be an eternal separation between those who are found in Christ and those who are outside of Him. And if we begin to pull on that thread of final judgment, we begin to, to deny it or minimize it, what we will soon find is that we unravel the whole of the Christian faith with it because there is no Christian faith without this doctrine. Well, Peter in this text draws our attention to the final judgment, but he does so in a way that is very interesting that that fits the dynamic you see throughout the New Testament that proclaims that the final judgment is both a reality that in some sense has already happened in Christ and it's a reality that is still to come. 
And so as we live in this overlap of ages between these two events, Peter calls us to to two things in particular, to walking in holiness and to enduring suffering willingly. And the final judgment is tied to both of these commands. So we're going to walk through this text today, noting these two words of instruction that Peter gives from this passage. Number one is this, because the final judgment has already come in Christ... Live no more for human desires, but for the will of God. Because the final judgment has already come in Christ, live no more for human desires, but for the will of God. In verses 1 through 3, the first half of the text here. So in what sense has the final judgment already come? Notice that Peter begins by saying, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, the word since is a connecting word that we should draw our attention to what just, became, uh, just came before. And, and uh, 3 18 to 22 is the passage that immediately precedes this one. Peter is referencing that entire passage. He's referencing the entire storyline that he has just revealed to us or just laid out before us in, in chapter 3, verses 18 to 22, which speaks of Christ's death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God in victory over all cosmic powers. And in the middle of telling that story, he also makes reference to the days of Noah and mentions that there were eight people in the days of Noah who were delivered from the judgment that came on that world. Uh, Call call that the first final judgment. Paradoxical, right? But the, the first judgment on the old world came, and yet the ark delivered eight people into a new world. It was as though they had passed through the judgment to inherit a new world altogether. Peter says that the resurrection of Christ from the dead is our ark. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is what ensures that we who are in Christ are delivered from the judgment that will deluge this world and bring us safely into the world to come. So when Peter says Uh, In verse 1 of this passage, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he's referring back to all of that that he just said. The death, resurrection, ascension of Christ as the anticipation of the final judgment for all who belong to Christ. So you might put it this way, Jesus Christ has already been through the final judgment in history as our representative. And therefore for us, final judgment is already past. What is the conclusion then? Peter says in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now the word that is translated here in the ESV as for is a word that, that could mean two different things. It could mean for because it could also mean that, as in here's the content of the way of thinking that you're supposed to arm yourself with. Try out that reading. I think it actually works a little better. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, namely that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That is, Paul, uh, Peter says, take the mindset that having suffered in the flesh with Christ, you have now ceased from sin. Now, what in the world does that mean? Uh, I believe that Peter's thought is orbiting in the same vicinity here as Paul's thought 
does in Romans chapter 6. And there are some commentators who disagree with me on this. Uh, and they make fine arguments for another view, a view that, that persuaded me earlier in the week, and then later in the week I changed my mind. And I might change it back, so I'll try to preach this again if I ever do. But um, I'm just going to give you this, uh, this idea from Romans 6, the parallels, to, to tell you what I think Peter's saying here about the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us about Christ in verse 10, this. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, in what sense did Christ die to sin once for all? It cannot mean that he committed sins and then stopped. Christ has never committed any sin. He's the one person who hasn't. So we know it doesn't mean he committed any acts of sin and then stopped doing that. What it seems to mean in Romans 6.10 is that Christ, dying in the likeness of sinful flesh, dying under the powers of this age, died to it all, died to the very power of sin itself, died to the powers of the present age, death, the devil, all of that. He died and then he was raised so that these things have nothing more to do with him. That seems to be what Peter means, in my view, when he says the one who has suffered in the flesh, that is, who has died with Christ, has ceased from sin. That means the power of sin's dominion over our lives, if we are in Christ, if we have been joined to him by faith, the power of sin over our lives has been broken. And it seems almost identical to what Paul says in Romans 6, 7, where he says, For one who has died, that is, died with Christ, has been set free from sin. So there's another strong parallel there. Uh, So Peter seems to be moving in that same realm of thought to tell us, not that we will never sin again. Uh, Of course, that's not what he means when he says the one who who does this has ceased from sin. The, The New Testament's clear that we continue to sin, we're continuing to ask God's forgiveness for our sins, but it is clear that the power of sin's domination over us is broken when we are joined to Christ in His death and resurrection, as symbolized in baptism, which we witnessed here today. So we no longer live under its lordship, we no longer live for it, but Christ has broken it, its power over us. Very similar thought. One more verse that seems to confirm this reading. Peter has already said in chapter 2, verse 24, if you want to flip back one page, you can see Peter referring to Christ said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So there's my case for reading verse 1 that way. Now, there's a storyline in Scripture, a storyline that leads up to events of final judgment uh, leading to the separation of the righteous from the wicked forever. And that separation then entails that the wicked are swept away from God's creation. They are thrown into what Revelation pictures as a lake of fire. They're exiled forever. They have no more presence in God's good world so that the creation itself can be renewed and be free from any stain of sin forever and ever. So in other words, once the final judgment has come, we expect there to be 
no more sin in us. And yet, Peter points out in verse 2, as he's picking up on this thought, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer uh, for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, that key phrase, in the flesh, refers to us continuing to live in this present age, even though for us in Christ, the final judgment has already passed. So it's a strange time that we're in. We are, we are past the judgment of God in Christ, and yet this present age where sin and death and Satan reign is still persisting, and we continue to live in it. And so we need God's instructions to tell us what to do in this strange time. And Peter tells us here that we are to pursue holiness, and in the pursuit of holiness, it will be specifically our identity, our sense of who we are, that will drive our behavior. Our understanding that we who have died with Christ to sin, now live to righteousness, can walk in this present age no longer under the power of sin. And Peter contrasts then human passions or human desires with the will of God. We are to pursue the latter not the former. Now, why does Peter set human passions or desires over against the will of God? Does that mean that human desires are always at odds with God's will? Well, of course not. It doesn't mean that. What it means is human desires, which are God-given good things, can be misdirected away from God. And that is a desire that becomes sinful. So notice the things that Peter lists in verse 3 as these examples of human desires or human passions. Uh, He says, uh, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, he's speaking here of base desires, but at the root of these base desires, you can discern a handful of things. A desire for food and drink, a desire for sex, a desire for uh, society, being, being part of a group, being accepted, and a desire to worship something. These are all good things in themselves. They're all God-given desires, and properly ordered toward God's will, these desires result in good things. But Peter is speaking here of how they become misdirected when they're turned away from God and they become gods themselves. And so, if you drink yourself to intoxication, or if you pursue pornography or hookups, or you go to bed with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or if you uh, visit frequently parties where what can be described going on there is, is best captured in the term debauchery, if you're doing these things in your life... At the root of that, of of every one of those actions, is the same thing. At the root of that is a desire to fill a void that's in your heart. At the root of that is is a desire to take from created things what only God can give us. And over time, these activities, these passions of the Gentiles, as Peter calls them, these things don't leave you with any joy They don't leave you thinking, man, I'm thankful that I have this in my life. I'm so thankful that my life has been enriched by these activities. 
They don't leave you thinking that way. They, they, they're more like an addiction or an itch. Something that's there that demands to be scratched, but when you do it, you think, you know, I just, I'd rather not have the itch at all. But that's how sin works. It, it makes big promises, but it doesn't deliver. And what that means then is, is if you are in Christ, the power of these things over your life has been broken and your desires are now to be elevated to the will of God, first and foremost. Think of Jesus uh, after the event with the Samaritan woman when he talked to her at Jacob's well and the disciples had gone into the town to buy food, which would indicate they probably hadn't eaten in a while, and they come back and, and find Jesus having talked to this woman, and, uh, and Jesus has shared the gospel with her. She's gone to tell uh, people in her town about Jesus, and the disciples tell Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. It's obviously been a long time since you've eaten. You need to eat. And Jesus' response is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That is my greatest desire, my drive, my focus is to please the Father in all things. That is the mindset that we who have died with Christ are to pursue. If you are in Christ, your desires must change. Now that doesn't mean they will necessarily change overnight. Sometimes the Lord grants that extraordinary work in someone's heart. But most of the time, God uses ordinary means and He uses time and experience to change our desires. We, we cultivate new habits. We join ourselves to new groups of people. We begin a process of desiring His will more and more and growing in it. And speaking of that process, I've been reading a book. I've been listening to a book, actually, which counts as reading. Uh, but I've been listening to a book recently that has been very helpful, and I want to recommend it to you. It's not a Christian book, but it's full of wisdom. And it's a book entitled Atomic Habits by James Clear. And uh, it's about making small changes in your life that can lead to uh, big results over time as you develop new habits. Uh, Clear gives a, a wonderful insight in the book that I really resonate with, where he argues that the power of a new habit is best nurtured by the pursuit of a new identity. The power of a new habit is best nurtured by the pursuit of a new identity. So think of it this way. If you, say, wanted to lose 30 pounds and you set that as a goal, Clear's argument is you're actually going to do better if you don't think about the goal all the time but rather think more in terms of what is the kind of person that I want to become. And so let's say you want to become a person who exercises regularly. So instead of thinking, I'm going to exercise myself to 30 pounds lighter, think in terms of, of saying, I want to become a person who exercises. I want to begin to think of myself in those categories. And he says every morning or evening or whenever you do it, but every time you go to the gym or every time you go out for a run or, or, or just get on the floor and do some push-ups, every time you do that, you're casting a vote to become that kind of person. And so over time, he says, you don't have to be perfect, but if you cast more votes to become that kind of person than you do against that kind of person, then that is indeed the kind of person you will become. And then the goals will pretty much take care of themselves at that point. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, that is remarkably insightful. And then I thought, that sounds a lot like the New Testament with one major difference. 
And the major difference is this. The New Testament does not say pursue a new identity. It says you already have a new identity. This is who you are. You are justified in Christ, completely free of all stain of sin before God's final judgment. You have died. You've been raised into the new creation with Him. Therefore, be who you are. Be who you are already. And if you are struggling with sin or you're struggling to develop the habits in your life that can uh, propel you toward greater and greater holiness, then I urge you to focus on thinking in terms of who you already are in Christ. And simply seek to live that out day by day. And so Peter tells us we must pursue the will of God over human desires. First and foremost, we must pursue holiness because the final judgment has already come and we have the power in Christ to do it. And then second, Peter tells us because the final judgment is still to come, endure the world's rejection now. Because the final judgment is still to come, Endure the world's rejection now in verses 4 through 6. When you live in Satan's domain, the pursuit of holiness is a disruptive act. Notice what Peter says in verse 4. With respect to this, they, the Gentiles, are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Ask yourself this question, why would it be that in the first century Roman Empire, pagans would malign Christians for simply not participating in pagan activities? Why would that happen? Didn't the the Roman pagans understand the principle of live and let live? Didn't they understand, you know, I've got my thing over here, you can have your thing, we'll just stay in our two lanes and it'll be fine, We we can live together. Peter says that's not the case. Peter says they malign you. They speak ill against you. They're coming after you for these things because the pursuit of holiness disrupts things for them. How is that the case? Well, there's a quote from a scholar named J.M.G. Barclay who lays out something of what would have been going on in the first century when Christians withdrew from these pagan activities. Family members who broke ancestral traditions on the basis of their newfound faith showed an appalling lack of concern for their family responsibilities. Christians deserted ancestral practices passed on since time immemorial for a novel religion, if such it could be called, of recent manufacture. The exclusivity of the Christian's religion, their arrogant refusal to take part in or to consider valid the worship of any god but their own deeply wounded public sensibilities. Such an unnatural and ungrateful attitude to the gods even branded them as atheists. Moreover, it was highly dangerous for even one segment of the community to slight the gods, whose wrath was ever to be feared. Civic peace, the success of agriculture, and freedom from earthquake or flood were regularly attributed to the benevolence of the gods. So put yourself in the shoes of a first century pagan in the Roman Empire, And you have a few Christians living in your city, your town, your community. What do you notice about them? You notice that they don't worship 
the pagan gods. They don't go to the feasts or the, the temples. They don't offer sacrifices to the gods. And, and they're living in your town, and, and the gods might then become angry at your town because of the presence of these blasphemers. And so your crops may be on the line because of what these Christians are refusing to do. Uh, If there's an earthquake, you can very easily attribute that to the wrath of the gods against the Christians. The gods are angry because of these Christians. Moreover, those kinds of feasts, those kinds of activities, they were ways of of bonding a society together. Uh, They were kind of like the, the Friday night football games where I grew up in East Texas. If you deliberately chose not to come to those, you were putting yourself on the outside of things in my hometown. Uh, so the Christians, they're, they're voluntarily, in a sense, marginalizing themselves. They're, they're sa- staying away from the activities that bond the community together uh, around paganism. Moreover, by doing so, they are implicitly saying with their lives that you pagans are in the wrong and we're in the right. So for a first century pagan to see Christians doing this, or actually not doing these things, The conclusion would be, you're angering the gods, you're breaking the fabric of society, and you're condemning your neighbors in the process. You are a menace to society. And so what might the response of a dignified, respected pagan be to the presence of Christians in his community? Well, it would be to malign, to marginalize, and to persecute to try to drive this pernicious influence out of your town. Speak ill of the Christians so that no one else gets the idea that it's safe to follow them, that they're in any way to be respected or or listened to. Speak ill of them, malign them. Don't visit their businesses. Don't buy or sell to them or from them. When job opportunities come up, don't hire a Christian to do a work that a pagan could just as easily do. When, when important social circles have, have uh, openings for new people to join, don't allow Christians in. When prominent community positions open up, don't let Christians occupy those positions. And if it gets bad enough, you might even gather a mob of people to go outside a Christian's home and threaten violence against him and his family. So for Christians living in the first century Roman Empire, it might be a whole lot like if you lived in San Francisco today and you refused, when asked, you outright refused to fly a rainbow flag. What would be the result? To pursue holiness in this present age leads to suffering from your community. And this is where the final judgment matters. This is where our doctrine that a final judgment is still to come gives us the theological resources we need to endure whatever it may cost us to follow Christ. Notice what Peter says in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those who malign you now, followers of Christ, they will answer to God, not only for for going after the desires of the Gentiles, human passions, but also for abusing and marginalizing you. 
One day, God will answer for you, but that means in the present, you don't have to answer for yourself. In the present time, you can endure it just as Jesus did because he committed himself, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The way that Peter describes God in verse 5 is to indicate that God's judgment is ready at any moment to fall. He is ready to judge. He stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And the words of, or the image that Jonathan Edwards gives in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the unconverted are walking over the pit of hell on a rotten bridge. Visibly, the planks beneath their feet are frail and brittle and could break at any moment. We do not know which step it will be that will cause him to plunge into the fiery abyss below. But we are sure that one of them will. And it is only the good pleasure of God that holds that bridge up without any obligation to do so right now. That is the idea Peter is giving us in verse 5. Judgment is ready to fall at any moment. And when it comes, Peter has been careful to mention that God will, through Jesus Christ, judge the living and the dead. He will judge both. Now, why bring that up? We're very used to thinking that in those terms here in the Christian West, but in the first century Roman Empire, it was not a common understanding that there would be accountability after death. There was a, a, an idea of everyone going to the underworld, but there was no sense of a judgment that you have to face after death. And Peter makes clear, even should pagans die in this age, they will not escape the judgment that is coming because when God judges, He will judge both the living and the dead. Death itself will be no escape from accountability. And then verse 6 is a very puzzling verse. Peter concludes by saying, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Some have argued on the basis of this verse that after death, we have a second chance to believe the gospel. This is a view called post-mortem evangelism. Uh, so the idea is that we will all live and die, and if you didn't believe the gospel now, you'll always have a chance after death to believe and so be saved. Is that what Peter means when he says the gospel was preached even to those who are dead? Emphatically, that is not what Peter means. Uh, Wayne Grudem, in his commentary on 1 Peter, gives three solid reasons for us to reject that view. Uh, one reason is that it would completely contradict what Peter has just said in verse 5. In verse 5, he's just mentioned that those pagans who malign you are going to be accountable when they stand before God. Now, what sense would it then make to say, actually, they might go on to die, at which point, no longer having an opportunity to malign you, no longer having all the things that impelled them to live that way, they'll be able to renounce it all and then be saved in the end. It undermines everything he's just said in verse 5. Second, it undermines everything he says in verses 4 through 6 altogether, where his main point is to encourage Christians to endure the suffering. Endure the suffering of this present age because of final judgment's coming. But how would that work then if we could say, well, 
I could not endure the suffering. I could renounce Christ now when it's tempting to, right? I could renounce him now and, and be accepted in my society and live as a good Roman citizen and, and eventually die. And then when I die, I can just renounce all that and I'll be saved in the end. So it would undermine that argument as well. And then Grudem points out it would contradict much of the rest of the New Testament, which speaks of the missionary mandate of the church. Uh, it, why is it necessary for the church to take the gospel to the nations if everyone's going to hear the gospel after death anyway? And uh, it contradicts specific statements of the New Testament, such as Hebrews 9.27, which says um, it is appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. So I would say there's no way Peter means there is a second chance to believe after death. So what then does he mean? I believe Peter means in verse 6 that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead now, but when they heard the gospel, they were alive. He's talking about Christians who heard the gospel, believed, and have now died. It would be similar to me saying, the playwright William Shakespeare was born on April 23rd, 1564. In which case, you might say, well, was he a playwright when he was born? And I would say, well, no, he wasn't, but you know what I mean, right? So uh, that's what Peter seems to be saying here. The gospel was preached to them, and now they have gone on, they have died. Why bring this group up at all? What's the point of speaking about believers who have died? Well, again, think back to the first century pagan way of thinking. In the first century pagan way of thinking, there was, there was really nothing more to come after death other than the underworld. There was no reckoning. There was no uh, sense that anything greater was coming. And so Peter is putting death into its proper perspective here. And he's showing these pagans, or these Christians rather, who, who would who would have pagan neighbors who have already judged uh, their, their loved ones who have died, who have already probably said things like, well, that message about Jesus, that, that gospel that they call it, doesn't seem to make any difference in the end, does it? Because in the end, the Christian dies just like the pagan. In the end, we all end up dead. So why believe that message at all? So uh, Peter speaks of that as being judged in the flesh uh, the ESV says the way people are. A better translation would be according to man. According to man's opinion, I think that is that what that means. That though our Christian loved ones have died and they are judged in the flesh as uh, according to man, as those who wasted their lives, fools who wasted their lives for something that didn't matter in the end. But by contrast, Peter says, they might live in the Spirit according to God. Man's verdict is that their lives were wasted and the gospel they heard made no difference. God's verdict is completely opposite. God's verdict is that they live in the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. One day their bodies will be raised just as Jesus' body was raised. And now, having died, they've gone into the presence of Christ where they're already tasting the beginning of that new life. Our loved ones who have died, though condemned by the world for wasting their lives, are justified by God 
and given life through His Spirit. That's the point of verse 6. And that's why the coming final judgment matters for us, because it will reveal in that day who we already are. In that day, our eternal destiny will not be decided. It's already been decided if you're in Christ. It's already been decided by His death and resurrection and your union with Him by faith. Final judgment is over. You have nothing to fear from it. But when that day comes and we are raised from the dead with Christ, we will be publicly revealed as His people. We will be vindicated. And those who have maligned us for following Jesus in this age will be condemned forever. And if that's the way the story goes, we can endure a little suffering now. We can endure whatever it costs to follow Christ in this age. The bottom line is this. You will be condemned in one court and justified in the other. You will either be condemned by the world and justified by God, or you will be justified by the world and condemned by God. But you can't have it both ways. There is no dream scenario where those who are justified by God in Christ also receive the world's applause. The pathway to glory runs through the cross. And so because the final judgment has come, we can pursue holiness because it will come, we can endure suffering. So I call upon you, pursue holiness and endure suffering now, all under the shadow of a final judgment that has already come and also is yet to come. That final judgment is depicted in the act of baptism. If you are not a believer in Christ, I want to call upon you to join yourself to Him by faith, knowing that one day you will answer to God and that this gospel that is preached to you, that Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners, that He was raised from the dead, He is now enthroned at the right hand of God, this gospel is for you to be able to stand righteous before God at the final judgment. And the only way to do that is to pass through judgment with Christ now. We picture that in baptism. Baptism is a, is a fitting image of death, of a deluge of water, much like the water that came over the old world in Noah's day, a judgment from which we emerge into new life. We saw that depicted today with Caleb. I call upon anyone here who has not confessed faith in Christ publicly, any of you who are visiting with us, any of you who are children who have not professed your faith, I call on you to believe in Christ to trust in Him alone, come and talk to one of us about your desire to be baptized. And if that's you today, we don't invite you to eat and drink with us. That comes later. You don't need this, this Lord's Supper today. You need Christ first. So come to Christ. If you are a believer in good standing with the church, we invite you to, to eat and drink with us as we once again remember the death of Christ that delivers us from the coming judgment. So as as our people get in place, would you take a moment to bow in silence and we'll prepare to distribute the bread and the cup.